I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you will hear Madison Perry. And my friend Ian, he just point blank right into Jackie, douses her with 72 ounces of water. And as he throws it, he says, back to whence ye came, demon. That and more. But before we start, I just want to remind you that the entire first year of the Risk podcast, you can get now in our shop at risk-show.com slash shop for only $20. That's a savings of uh, almost $6 for that whole first year. And if you add the three all-star episodes that we have there for only $5 more, then you're saving almost $10. So get to risk-show.com slash shop because it's the only way you can now get some of the best stuff we've ever done. This week, we're doing a rerun of our holiday episode from last year, 2012, with a little bonus story at the end. And then next week, all new stories, holiday stories for 2013. Now, here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is a track by our very own Jeff Barr behind me now. It's called Little Drummerd, and it was first on another podcast that Jeff makes called Mangled Meditations. (laughs) Mangled Meditations is the trippiest, most fucked-uppity NIST show of, uh, you know, it's sound collage, and each episode is like a little journey to other worlds. I remember I became a fan of Mango Meditations because I thought that it would make for good cannabis-influenced 
listening. <laughs> so in a way, that led us to our episode editor. And this current state of risk is brought to you in part by Mangled Meditations and Weed. So go find it at jeffbar.info. That's J-E-F-F-B-A-R-R. Now, last year at this time, we had Holiday Stories 1. Last week, we had Holiday Stories 2. Guess what the fuck we got up in here this week, friends? Tonight! Or this afternoon. Or this morning, even. I don't know what time you're on the treadmill these days. We bring you Holiday Stories 3. The show where all of the stories regard the holidays, at least pretty much. In a little bit, we're going to hear from my friend Jefferson, a New York-based storyteller. But first, we're going to start with a lovely lady, a regular on our show, an inspiration in the storytelling community, and always a delight. Miss Margot Lightman at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call Happy Accidents. So I used to go to this uh, trivia night across the street where I lived in New York City when I was single living with a roommate. And a bunch of friends and friends of friends used to go and join us. But one week I went and there was only one guy waiting to play. And we needed more people. So I called my roommate to come over and join us. But she was on a date with this guy that she really hated. But she'd been dating him for like four months. But, I mean, she hated him. He, he, she came over to join us. And this guy sucked. I mean, royally. I mean, first of all, he was a celebrity trainer. I mean, like the douchiest <laughs> fucking job you could possibly have. He had a kid, a strange child somewhere in Nebraska. I mean, he said things like, Teresa and I aren't fucking yet, but we've done everything else. What about you guys? Like, he would say stuff like that. And then he would clarify. He'd be like, you know, blowjobs. Or I was like, yeah, I know what everything else <laughs> is. And me and the random guy were like, no, we're not doing anything. We, we aren't even dating. I barely know this guy. So the celebrity trainer was so gross. I mean, he followed the other guy to the bathroom when he went. Like, let's go talk, bro. And then when he went to the bathroom with him, he talked to him about how he should definitely try and fuck me. Like, while their dicks are out, he was like, you should try and fuck Margo. And the guy was like, okay, maybe. Calm the fuck down. Um, so while they were gone, my roommate turns to me and says, look, you've got to go out for a drink with the other guy so I can go home and dump this asshole. And I was like, he's really good at the sports round. Can we keep him around for one more ring? <laughs> and then she considered it. And then she was like, we can get another sports ringer. I can't tolerate it. I have to dump him, but I need the apartment to be empty. So you've got to go out with this other guy and just get a drink. You know, give me a half hour. I'll dump him. He'll be out of her life. So I was like, fine. So I go out for a drink with the other guy. And I don't know, maybe it's a martini. Maybe it's because I hated the celebrity trainer so much that it made the other guy look good by default. Do you know what I mean? Like, have you ever waited tables and had a really horrible table and been like, well, you guys get free pie because you're not these assholes. <laughs> like, that's what it was like. This guy, I was like, I don't even like you, but I hate someone else so much that I'm going to make out with you because I have no choice. And 
So basically, we start making out, and then he comes home with me, and successfully, the, the celebrity trainer was gone. It was a successful dumping. And then I hook up with the other guy all night. And then in the morning, I say, you know, I'm not interested in you, uh, so just go. And, and he was like, okay, great. And I was like, don't call me, don't contact me. He's like, okay, I won't. And so he leaves, but he leaves his shirt at my place, like... George Costanza move, right? So I call him and I was like, hey, George Costanza, you left your fucking shirt at my house. Like, now you're trying to see me again. He's like, I'm not. I honestly just left it. I don't, I don't care to see you again. So, and I said, well, what are you going to do? And he goes, well, I'll be in your neighborhood on Sunday. So I'll come get it then. I go, fine, but don't contact me in between now and then. Just come on Sunday. So, I got to say, guys, he totally left me alone for the whole week, and it was so hot. I mean, he didn't contact me. <laughs> nothing. He just, I, it was like, he was like, okay, you don't want me to talk to you? He, like, he didn't talk to me he didn't, in any form, internet, text, nothing. Left me alone. So I, by Sunday, I was like, I think I'm in love with this guy. <laughs> oh, my God. I, like, I think he might like, hate me, and I love that so much, and I'm so excited about it. And, so, and by Sunday, I'm waiting for him to come get his shirt, and he never calls or anything. I call him, and I was like, hi, are you coming again? get your shirt and he's like yeah yeah I'm coming I'll be around later and I'll pick it up I was like okay were you gonna get in touch with me he's like yeah I mean whatever so he comes to get the shirt and he sits down and he looks me in the eye and he goes hey so um, I like you like more than a little bit so are you interested in me and it was really hot because it was incredibly direct. Like it, he was just saying, I like you. Do you like me? I'm not going to play games with you. I'm going to look you in the face and I'm going to say it to your face. And I was so interested. And so while my roommate and the celebrity trainer were, <laughs> were breaking up, me and the other guy start dating. And things start moving really fast. I mean, that was April. By May, I got drunk on way too many margaritas and I told him I was in love with him. And he was like, yeah, me too. And... By July, he came with me to a wedding, and he met all my college friends, and they loved him. And by October, we were talking marriage. And we went to look at rings at the local jeweler, and his name was Jerry. And on a side note, he had the greatest voicemail I have ever heard in my life. It, it went like this. He was like this eccentric guy in his 60s with a gray comb over, probably a drinking problem. And you'd call, and, he'd, and it would go, you have reached the Sprint PCS customer up. Uh, hold on one second. Jerry. <laughs> like, he didn't have time to stop to make the message. He just was like, you know, I'm in the middle of a conversation, and I'm going to set up my voicemail. That's how I am. So, I mean, I, w- I loved him. Uh, so, anyway, so every time we went into the store to look at rings and to kind of talk about this process, he told us the same story, which was like, ne- I'd never get a titanium ring, because if your finger swells up, you can't get it off. I had a guy who came in here, fingers swollen with a titanium ring. He said, beg me, can you get it off? I said, first, go down the street, get yourself a bottle of whiskey. Three hours later, after I sawed and sawed with a tiny saw, (laughs) the bottle of whiskey was gone, and the ring was off. I heard that story like 15 times, guys. (laughs) 15 times. Okay, so... (laughs) Then one night around Christmas, the guy, the guy I'm seeing, he calls me and he says he wants to take me to go see the tree at Rockefeller Center. And I say, you know, that's a really stupid idea. I've lived here for 10 years. It's a tourist <laughs> trap and I'm not going. I mean, what do you think I am? I'm not, I'm not like from Pennsylvania. I'm not going to that stupid tree. And he's like, please, let's go. And I was like, no. And so then we go out for sushi and he said, I've gotten us tickets to see It's a Wonderful Life in the theater. And I was like, well, that's really, that's also incredibly cheesy. And he's like, will you please go to this movie with me? So after 
we eat a massive amount of sushi, we go to It's a Wonderful Life. And then afterwards, he's saying, can you please, please go with me to Rockefeller Center? And I'm going, no, I don't want to go. And, and he's like, I really want to look at the tree. And I go, you want to look at a tree? You want to look at a tree? And we pass this park that has a gate. It's gated. It's closed. But there's like a few lights on a tiny tree. It's like, you want a Christmas tree? There's a Christmas tree. There's your fucking Christmas tree. Look at that. And then I look, and he's on one knee about to, like, I make him propose to me in front of a gated park with this dying tree, like, three lights on it. Because I don't have time. I don't have time to go to Rock Center. Like, that's how I roll. And so, uh, so he proposed to me this ring that we got from Jerry. It was just beautiful. And, and I'm, it's this wonderful, wonderful moment. And then we're standing there, and we're hugging, and we're kissing, and I go, we gotta go back to my place right now. And he was like, I know. And I'm like, not for that reason. Um, I just started racing down the street because uh, the, su- the sushi, I had heinous diarrhea from the sushi. Like immediately, it just set in. It was a few hours later and I was like, I have to get home right now. So this moment that he decides that he's going to spend his life with me, um, he also for the first time like really listens to me shit. Uh, <laughs> also on a side note, a friend of mine once said to me, you know when you go on vacation with a girl, that you really like, that's when you find out she poops. Anyway, as a side note. Um, So uh, I don't shit my pants. I get home in time. He listens to me poop. And after we get engaged, he never lets me forget this. I mean, he never lets me forget the the engagement poop. I mean, we move in together that February. We're married by that September. So we literally meet in April. We're engaged by December. We move in together February. And by the following September, we're married. It's all like within 18 months. And Jerry made our wedding bands, which was great because I got to hear the voicemail about 10 more times. (laughs) And I got to hear the story of the titanium ring about 10 more times. And so about four years later or so, we're living in Los Angeles and we decide to start trying to have a baby and over this weekend and Big Bear we like raw dog it a few times we go back to our lives and um, and then the day that that I'm gonna take the pregnancy test we go out to this brunch at a restaurant that only serves pork products I think it's around here it's called swine I mean it's literally just everything has, like the, the margaritas have pork in them everything has pork in it and so I just eat a massive amount of pork and so does he and then we go back to the house and I go to take a pregnancy test and while it, I don't know what the word is while it's computing what, I don't know what it is but like while it's processing my urine um I go and I look at it and it's positive and it's this amazing moment and I go to find my husband and he's in the other bathroom with the worst case of diarrhea <laughs> from the pork products and I'm like get out get out this is and he's like I can't I can't and it's just so and so finally I feel like we're even you know and so <laughs> so we're having this baby and things are moving along and we feel so lucky and we go and we take this class at the hospital and we have to go around and say uh, in the room what's the big biggest challenge in the pregnancy and what's the biggest joy and so I think one person went before us and they said maybe the biggest joy was that they were going to have another baby or whatever and then the biggest challenge was that it was hard to tell their parents because they haven't been together that long or something like that so then they get to us and for some reason my husband takes the lead on it and they go what's what's been the biggest challenge and I know what he's going to say because I for the first three months when I was pregnant was in the hospital twice with severe migraines I'm like he's going to talk about these headaches and it gets to him and he goes I'd say the biggest challenge is probably like how fast she got pregnant I mean it was like one time and it was like boom she was pregnant and I mean I felt like that was a really big challenge for me because I you know it's like wow you know like she it's so easy and like I wasn't expecting it to be that easy I'm like what are you doing they cut to 
the next people, it's like, what's your biggest challenge? They're like, my biggest challenge is I've had four miscarriages. I mean, the next person's like, my biggest challenge is I was told I could never have children. Like, every person in the room is talking about how they were told they could never have children. And he's like, I really struggling with like one, one time in, one time out, baby. And I was so humiliated. And so, and so we don't go back to the pregnancy class. Like, we just, I can't show my face in there again. I'm like, well, just figure it. I'm going to read a book. I can't go back. I can't go back. I'm so humiliated. So, so then this October, very late, nine days late, uh, our son was born. He, unlike us, really took his time to come. Being, he was super late. And, um, and I did, after he was born, he was healthy and it was great and he's beautiful and everything's wonderful in that way. But <laughs> I did consult with the nurse afterwards and I was like, come here. Did I shit at all when I had the baby? And she was like, a little. And I was like, thank God. Because that's a really good omen for me in my relationship. I know that it's all going to be okay. Thank you. do what's traditional for many families and all gather together for the holiday season, you'll see that this cluster, the same group of people again next year and the year after and the year after, and all grow old and some will die and some will grow up and marry, but always that central group of people will be getting together at the holidays. But it's not a part of your day-to-day life. It's not the stuff you're doing the rest of the year. So when you go back to that place, this reunion, you resume certain roles. On Christmas Eve Eve, Lucy and I got the kids into their pajamas, piled them into the car, and began driving them out to their grandmother's house. This was a routine we had done every Christmas since the kids were born. The only thing unusual about this routine this time was it was the first time we had done it since our divorce was finalized. We had broken up about a year before, after 15 years together, because my wife decided she no longer wanted to be married to me, so I had to accept that and just move on. We got them to the house. Lucy roused the two boys, and they went into the house sleepy. I picked up my daughter, carried her inside the house, and we got the kids tucked in. Lucy put her bag in the room we used to share at this house, and I took my bag downstairs to the study where I would be sleeping on a futon. Uh, went to the bar and got myself a bourbon, and Lucy came down, and she said, do you mind if I join you for a while? I was feeling kind of wound up from the car ride, and I said, sure, of course, we'll turn on some TV. So we turn on the TV, we watch Letterman. The sound's low, and we just start talking, and we have another drink. And soon Lucy is talking about the experience of dating after the end of our marriage. Now, we had a very, very difficult divorce. She kept it angry and protracted. She wanted full custody of the kids, which I wanted joint custody. She kept finding more and more reasons to file motions to keep this in the courts. It went on for a year, and it was not pleasant. 
whatever friendship there was between us seemed to be ruined, much to my sadness. I didn't want the marriage to end, but I certainly didn't want our relationship to end. Yet here she was opening up. In a way, I had really always hoped that we'd be able to do this because nobody else in the world understands what I'm going through like she does. What it's like to be 40 and dating for the first time in 15 years after a long monogamous stretch. She said, I'm dating younger men, and I always have to say to them, I'm not after the dream. I said, well, what does that dream mean? And she said, it's, it's the dream of getting together and being in a long-term relationship and maybe getting married. Younger men seem to think that's a possibility with her, and she wanted to make it clear that she's done that and she's not at all interested. I sat and listened to all this, thinking, uh, one, that's a little surreal to listen to the woman with whom I was monogamous for so long talk about sex with other people. I also sort of bided my tongue. You know, I didn't want to open up to her the way she was opening up to me because, quite frankly, my sex life after the end of our marriage it was phenomenal. I was having orgies. I had been bisexual in my youth, and I was bisexual again. I had long-term relationships already in the first year out of our marriage. I had short ones. I had one-night stands. I mean, I was getting laid like crazy. So I listened. Uh, we had another drink. It's getting late. And she says, you know, you're the only person who's ever made me have an orgasm. I said, oh, well, I'm, so, I'm sorry to hear that because I'm glad you're having fun, but I'm sorry you're not having orgasmic pleasure. She's like, yeah, no one else knows how to do it like you know how to do it. And I thought, I know how to do it. I'd, I could get her off every single time we had sex. It's, it's a simple combination of activities that would move her from one thing to another to another and reliably produce an orgasm. But these other fellows seem not able to understand how to make my wife come. Suddenly we're kissing. And we haven't kissed in years. Even towards the end of our marriage and our time together, we didn't kiss. And certainly not during the year of divorce. And she's kissing me. Or am I kissing her? I'm not quite sure. But we're kissing and one thing leads to another. The next morning... My son, Kali, is sitting next to me on the bed. He's like, good morning, Dad. And it, I, I, I got a hangover. I'm like, oh, hey, hey, Kali. Uh, you're up early. What time? You know, 7 o'clock. And he's like, yeah. Are you naked? And I said, oh, I, I guess I am. I, le I left my pajamas over here. And I'm trying to reach the pajamas and get them on under the sheets without revealing myself to him. He's like, yeah, Mom was naked, too. She just went upstairs. I thought, holy shit. Did we have sex did my wife and I just fuck? And were we busted <laughs> by our middle son, our 10-year-old boy? I didn't know how to address the possible repercussions of this, but I knew that I'd be trapped in this house for the next several days with my ex-wife, our children, and her entire family. Now, in her family, I should say, her parents divorced when she was a small child. Her brother, who is gay, had recently broken up with his boyfriend. Her father had since married and divorced twice. He has three ex-wives. They all come together for Christmas, and I can refer to that as Xmas because it's the gathering of the exes. Eventually, Lucy came down from her room, and she's all smiles. She's really glad to see me. She's happy and sitting next to Kali, and the other kids come in, and we all decide to go 
ride to town carousel. So we go to the carousel. The boys each get their own horses. My daughter Lily is riding between my, on my lap on one, and Lucy's watching. And every time the horse goes by, she's waving and smiling at the kids and at me. We go for a walk in town and do a little shopping, just looking around on Christmas Eve at the lights and stuff. And she's holding my hand and always smiling at me. And she has a beautiful smile. I hadn't seen it in a while. Uh, She seemed thrilled to be in my company instead of angry, which is the only way I'd seen her for so long. There's a tradition in this family on Christmas Eve. Once the kids are asleep and we're convinced of this, they bring out the peace pipe. Every Christmas Eve, this family sits around all the generations and smokes pot and gets ready to do Santa Claus. This is always amusing because we're passing this around with various levels of expertise in in smoking pot. And then we remember that we're supposed to put Christmas together. So we assemble all of Christmas and everyone goes to bed. And Lucy and I are sitting by the embers of the fire, stoned, drunk. And I move to sit next to her. And she says, oh, you're making your move, huh? I was like, I, am I? I don't know. I, I, I don't really know what's happening here. I don't really know how to navigate this. And she said, it's very confusing, but I think it's pretty common. And I said, oh, well, I have to say, it's really nice to be with you and not be fighting. But I wonder, I mean, now that we're divorced, are we going to start dating? And she's like, no, we're, we're not going to date, but we'll always have Christmases which was a very sweet and kind of romantic thought. And soon we were back in the study making love. And then she's kissing me. She whispers in my ear, you broke my heart into a thousand pieces. And I said, you broke my heart too. And so we're kissing and she says, "Um, you should have opened yourself up to me before. I I didn't really know what that meant. But I said, I always try to be open with you. And she said, you know, it's your fault too. And I said, we can make love or we can talk about the reasons for our breakup, but we can't do both at the same time. And she's like, make love to me. And I made her come. The next day, Christmas morning, Lucy is snuggled up next to me, sitting on the floor, leaning against my leg, looking up at me and smiling as the kids are excited. And we have a beautiful Christmas day. That night, though, after everyone went to bed and the fire was burning down and we were having a drink, all the steps that had led to the spontaneous getting together on the night before Christmas Eve and led to our making love on Christmas Eve were again falling into place. And I was expecting that we were probably going to wind up making love again and accepting that because now we have Christmases. She said, this confusing thing, I just don't, I don't know really what to make of all this. And I said, I, I think it's confusing too, but I like the way it feels. And she said, do you want to get back together again? And I sat back and I said, I said, are you thinking that way? I mean, I've never heard you express that thought. You want us to perhaps get married again? And she said, it's what everybody else wants. Which is not the most romantic proposal of marriage. I said, look, 
this is a lot for us to talk about right now. Um, let's make a plan to talk about this back in the city and let's see. And she's like, I'm not looking forward to that conversation, but you can give me a call. So the last night, not having sex, I feel like we had a rupture because we tried to put a name on it. When Lucy asked if, if I wanted to get together again, and she said, it's what everyone else wants, there was a realization in there for both of us, I think, that, oh, this is the serious consequence of this. Two nights ago, we're having drunken sex and making love for the first time in years. And the next night, we have the best, like the best we ever had. And by the third night, it was just crushingly over. We had to go back to being the grown-ups we had become. We went back to New York. I never gave her that call. We never talked about it. What was loveliest and, in some respects, bittersweet about the last time I made love to my wife was it was the last time, really, that I saw the woman I fell in love with. She was kind to me. She was happy to see me. She wasn't attacking me. And I thought, wherever we go next in this, we have found these two people again. She can remember me as the man she fell in love with in our 20s after college, and I could see her as the woman I wanted to marry. But as quickly as she was there, that, that Xmas, she was gone again. When we came back to the city, she was replaced by the woman who had replaced my wife years before, manipulative, bitter woman who wanted nothing more in her life than to just be done with me, ruin me, destroy me, erase me from her life. The woman that I'd spent that Xmas with was a little like a ghost from the past coming back to say one last goodbye to me. The following Xmas, the last one that I was been with the family, in fact, in a house full of people, cold outside, she would leave the room every time I entered the room. She would literally see me come into a room and get up from whatever she was doing, talking, cooking, playing with the kids, and just exit. And she did this for three straight days. And so I, just to make every, everyone's life easier, I would choose a place and just sort of stay there for a while and play with the kids. Otherwise, it felt like I was chasing her from room to room. And after that, she banned me from further Xmases. We haven't had a constructive conversation since. Our TV show
This is Risk. This is uh, Sufjan Stevens behind me now. What we just heard from my good friend Jefferson, you can find him at onelifetake2.blogspot. He also hosts the New York and D.C.-based sexy storytelling shows Bear and Spill. Well, folks, I cannot emphasize enough how in need of your support Risk is right now. We have a lot on the horizon. We have a lot that we're building toward. Taking the live show to Europe? Creating more video courses, like our first one, Storytelling for Business, that you can find at thestorystudio.org. And developing our new courses, Storytelling for Dating, Storytelling for Personal Growth, and Storytelling for Interviews and Entrance Essays. Keep checking thestorystudio.org to find out about all of our workshops and coaching. I think you can see from the past year's content that we are creating something truly worth keeping running. Now, on a weekly basis, you guys will be writing in about how risk has become a part of your life. It occupies your heart and your mind over the course of your week. And about how the show embraces all of life. You don't know if it's going to be hilarious or provocative or completely tragic and the thing is if risk wasn't there anymore there would be a gap now we have people to pay to keep the touring show the live shows in new york and los angeles the podcast and our school the story studio running it is all very definitively growing (laughs) we just need it to be growing quicker too many people have been working on this show as volunteers for too long. But we need listener support, the support of people who appreciate what it is we're doing to be not just on our feet, but up and running at full tilt. So please go to MaximumFun.org and consider becoming a member there or at least making a one-time donation and just make sure you earmark risk as the reason you're showing support. That's MaximumFun.org slash donate. We love what we're doing, and we love that you're along with us on the journey. So let's come together and help keep this thing going. We're going to hear from writer Julie Threlkeld in just a moment. But before that, we're going to go to the Risk Live show in New York City where we're going to hear from Mara Wilson. It's funny to have Mara on the show at this time of year because you might... Remember her from the 1994 version of Miracle on 34th Street. Mara is a dear friend of the show, and she has a very popular blog called Mara Wilson Writes Stuff. Here she is at Risk New York with a story we call Reconcilable Differences. So when I was very young, I would wish and pray every single night for a little sister. And when my mom became pregnant, I, not knowing a lot about reproduction, assumed that I had something to do with it. Um, I I thought that uh, my little sister was a miracle and that she was going to be my best friend. Um, She had no say in the matter. She was going to be my best friend. 
which makes me sound like a very calculating five-year-old. But uh, fortunately, we got along right away. Anna was so cute and so sweet and so funny, and nothing made me happier than playing with her and singing to her and making her laugh until she'd hiccup and go, do this again. (laughs) But then when I was eight years old and she had just turned three, our mother died. She had cancer. And I knew that our relationship was going to be different from then on. So we went through a plethora of nannies and babysitters, but uh, Anna and I were always together. And then when I was 13, my father remarried. And I really wasn't a good age at a good age for it anyway. Anna was uh, younger and you know more malleable. Um, but one of the biggest changes that happened was my stepmother was Catholic. Now, my mother had been Jewish, and my father had been elapsed Catholic and said, okay, you can raise the kids Jewish. But my new stepmother wanted us to be Catholic. So that and a bunch of other changes just made me feel really put out, and I ended up going away uh, to a boarding school for the visual and performing arts, and then off to NYU, which is basically as far away from Los Angeles as you can get. My only regret was leaving my sister Anna behind. And I would put her pictures and her letters up on my wall, and I would marvel at how much she changed every time I came home. But I changed too. Uh, She became Catholic, and I became an atheist. So um, it was Christmas Eve, my last year of college. I was home visiting her, and Anna had pulled me into her room, like she always did, uh, under the pretext of giving me a makeover, because <laughs> she got the color and style gene, and I did not. And, uh, and so while she's, you know, painting my nails or whatever, she very casually says, so how long have you not believed in God? And I said, oh, well, I died. Where did you get that idea? And she said, oh, I pretty much figured it out on my own. I, I, at first I thought, oh shit, she read my diary, but looking back, I, I kind of was kind of obvious about it. I mean, I, I would always say, you know, no, I'm Jewish, you can't make me do this, I'm Jewish. It was my way of rebelling, you know, you can't, you can't make me do this, I'm Jewish. Um, and I would absolutely refuse to go to church, you know, my parents would go to church on Sunday and I'd, you know, sleep in and watch Homestar on our cartoons or whatever it was I did. Um, and, uh, but I never said, you know, take me to a temple instead. And uh, also... When I found out that my sister was going to a Christian school and her science book was called Exploring God's Creation, I decided to give her some books about science and evolution, too. So she'd kind of put all of these together and realized it. And so I I admitted it. I played it down a little bit and I said, I'm agnostic. And, you know, there might be something out there, there might be a God, but I don't think it's any of the gods I've ever heard of. And uh, I don't see any evidence for it. And she looked very serious and said, well, what if I could prove it to you? (laughs) I said, I really don't think you can. And so we got into this theological debate. One thing to remember is that since I grew up Jewish, I have always, always resented people trying to put their religion on me. That's not something that Jews do. You know, Jews like being the elite. Um, so, so it's something that's always causes just knee-jerk revulsion in me. And also, my sister and I are both incredibly stubborn. So uh, she starts talking to me about souls, and uh, she points to the boonch. Uh, the boonch is the dog. Um, the dog's actual name is Yoko. Um, which is funny because everybody, my sister especially, everybody loves the bunch and Yoko has a tendency to bring people together. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a bit ironic, but, uh, but she, she pointed the bunch and she said, 
you know, I'm glad that I'm not like her. I, human beings have souls. Animals don't. As much as I love her, I'm, I'm glad that I have this gift. And I said, no, we, we pretty much are the bunch. We just, uh, we're a little more evolved. We have a little more cognitive processes going on. But uh, we pretty much are that. And then she brought up Pascal's Wager. Pascal's Wager is basically this kind of spiritual insurance uh, you know, better to believe in God because that way, you know, you die, you go to heaven and if there isn't a God, well, you know, no loss for you. And I said, you know, I kind of echoed a joke I'd heard before and I was like, you know, Anna, that only takes the Judeo-Christian God into account. I mean, what if you die and it's Odin up there and he's like, you did not die in battle for me, no Valhalla for you. Anna did not think this was funny. Uh, she said, why are you mad at God, Mara? I said, I'm not mad at God. I don't think there's a God to be mad at. She said, well, you think you're so smart just because you go to college. And I got annoyed. I said, you know what? If there's one thing that college has taught me, it's that I'm an idiot. And that there's so much that I don't know out there. But have you read the Bible? The God, the God of the Bible is a tyrant. She said, well, it makes me feel good to know that God loves me. And I could tell she was getting upset, but I had to win. And I said, well, just because you want to believe that doesn't make it true. And she started to cry. And I felt the kind of pain that I always feel when my little sister cries. And like an idiot, I said, why are you crying? (laughs) And she said, because I know God doesn't want me to be mad at you, and I want you to go to heaven. And I said, look, you're not going to convince me of this, okay? If I do choose my, to change my beliefs, or not choose, really, it wasn't a choice. If I do ever change my beliefs, it's not going to be because of something somebody said to me. And we ended up going out that night, and we had Christmas Eve at our very Catholic family's house, and we, uh, there was this sort of simmering resentment between us you know, for the next few days. She was furious, and I was furious. All through Christmas, we were furious, and she would roll her eyes anytime I would say something. And I was really annoyed with her, too. But underneath my, my annoyance and my frustration, there was this profound sense of loss, because I realized that Anna couldn't remember the days when I used to sing to her and make her laugh. I felt like she had accepted Jesus into her heart and kicked me out. So the last night, um, you know, the, those few days we just kind of took it easy and, uh, you know, we played with the boonch. That last night, uh, we curled up with the boonch on the couch and watched the movie The Notebook, which was not my choice. Um, but, you know, I, Anna, Anna was 15 at the time, and, you know, I, I enjoy Ryan Gosling's torso as much as, you know, any other heterosexual woman. Uh, so we, we watched, and, um, but, and I could tell it was affecting her, and I kept looking over at her because this was my last night with her, and I didn't know who she was going to be the next time I saw her. At one of the sadder points in the movie, you know, she's cuddling up with the dog, and she said, Mara? And her voice was very young and very small, much younger than she actually was. And she said, Mara, do you think the city would let us bury a dog up in the hills after it died? That was not the kind of question I was expecting. Uh, And I said, well, I don't know, why? And she started talking about, you know, how much she and the dog loved going on walks up in the hills behind our house and how happy it made her and how much the dog loved it and that's where she would like to bury her after she died. And the dog's a rescue. She was kind of old and we got her anyway. And she was so sad talking about it. Just the idea of this loss made her sad. And she said, I don't know. I just wish the boonch could live forever, you know? 
And I wish that I had said something. I wish I had said, I know. I wish that I had comforted her in some way. But I just started to cry. And the thing is, I think that if there were some way that I could take all the pain that my sister ever has felt in her life or ever will feel in her life and experience it myself instead of it happening to her, I would gladly do that. But I'm not a messiah. And uh, the best I can do really is to wish and hope that she doesn't have to have any kind of unnecessary pain. But I don't believe wishes come true anymore. Um, So my sister's beliefs have changed a little in the past few years. Uh, She told me that she does believe animals have souls, and she's a vegetarian now. Um, And the thing is, though, that she is still a Christian. She's still a Catholic. I'm still an atheist. And her beliefs might change, and my beliefs might change, but I don't think we will ever stop trying to save each other. Thank you. A few years ago, uh, it was a few weeks before Christmas, and I woke up with a medical issue that had appeared literally overnight. Tremendous swelling behind my left ear and a lot of pain. So I eventually relented and went to go see a doctor, and he diagnosed me with an infected salivary gland. He gave me uh, antibiotics, and he said, this should clear up in about 10 days. You'll definitely be better by Christmas. Don't worry about it. Just go enjoy your holiday. So 10 days later, not only had it not gotten better, it had gotten a lot worse. I was now in uh, excruciating pain. I looked like Ted Kennedy after dental work. So I went back to him, and he took one look at me, and he said, I think we're going to check you into the hospital right now. So I checked into my local hospital, which is a really tiny hospital. And at the time, they only had one bed available in the entire hospital, and that was in the cancer ward. It's really weird staying in the cancer ward when you don't have cancer because everyone around you has much, much bigger problems than you have. Plus, everyone thinks you have cancer, so you have to constantly tell everyone kind of apologetically, oh, (laughs) by the way, I don't have cancer. So that's kind of awkward. So I had the room to myself for one night, which was great. But then on the second night, I got a roommate. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and they were rushing her in and putting her on the stretcher, and she was extremely agitated, and she seemed upset in a way that was out of proportion to the situation. She seemed to not really know what was going on. She was 86 years old, extremely hard of hearing, and her name was, and I'm not kidding, her name was Betty Smoke. And I remember thinking that she can't have lung cancer, because that would just be really way too cruel a coincidence. If she didn't have lung cancer, she had advanced liver cancer. She was a very, very difficult roommate. She was not happy to be in the hospital. So there was always this great 
drama going on over on Betty's side of the room on the other side of the curtain. She was screaming. She was ripping out IV tubes. She was trying to crawl out of bed and falling. So uh, basically, I was not getting any rest. And at the time, I was on really powerful painkillers. So I didn't mind what was going on around me. But after a couple days, I started to get better. And they started to take me off the Percocet. And then it really began to bug me um, that Betty was just totally out of control. So I took to escaping the room, and I would just go wander up and down the hall of the cancer ward, dragging my IV behind me just to get a break a couple times a day. By the third day, the swelling had started to go down. I was on one of my little tours of the hallway, and I was thinking, you know, they, I was feeling pretty good about things. I was thinking, okay, I'll get out of here by Christmas, and it looks like I'm going to be fine. And just as I was thinking that, a doctor came up to me with a thick binder, and he said, excuse me, are you Julie Threlkeld? Because I need to talk to you. Let's go to your room. And on the way, he started asking me, it was things like, where'd you grow up? Oh, in California? Did you grow up on a farm? What about work? Have you ever worked around industrial solvents or uh, like in a carpet cutting factory? What, do you, what about hobbies? Do you do any cave diving? And I just said, no, no, none of these things apply to me. You know, what, what are you talking about? And he said, well reason I'm asking you these questions is because you know how you first came in and we did a CAT scan to make sure you didn't have an abscess in your head? We caught the top of your chest on the CAT scan and we couldn't help but notice that the lymph nodes in your chest are nine times the size that they should be. <laughs> I, I just said, I'm sorry, what? Nine times? I mean, first of all, he was so exact, but I just thought nine times, is that's just way too big. And he was, you know, he was fairly reassuring. He said, look, everything else is coming up normal. But the problem is, is we can't really diagnose this problem while you have this other problem going on. So let's work on clearing this up. Go off, come back in a month. We'll do another CAT scan. We'll do some blood work and we'll go from there. In the meantime, try to enjoy your holiday. So he leaves and right on his heels, another doctor comes in and he turns out to be Betty's oncologist. And he says, Vitty, I just wanted to stop by and see if you had any questions about what's going on. And Betty said, I want to get better. And his response was, well, I'm afraid that's not going to happen. Your cancer's too far gone, and the best we can do at this point is make you comfortable. She actually seemed to accept this. It was strange. She said, well, uh, I guess whatever has to be, has to be. But then she seemed overcome by this wave of optimism, and she said, but, you know, anything can happen. And he said, that's right, Mrs. Smoke, anything can happen. Well, okay, kiddo, I'll be seeing you around. In the meantime, enjoy your holiday. As much as she annoyed me, I did feel for her because she was dying, she was frightened, and she seemed very much alone. At this point, I needed some air because it was really an upsetting exchange to listen to. So I, I left the room and went on another one of my walks. And I remember thinking, I, I don't know if this happens to you, but when someone delivers a piece of really bad news, my reaction is to have a totally irrational thought. And my thought was, you know, I came in here a few days ago and there was something wrong with me, but I don't think it was something seriously wrong. And now <laughs> I might have cancer. Could I have actually caught cancer <laughs> in this place? So I was thinking about that, and at, at that moment, the, the doors to the ward burst open, and these three strapping firemen walk in, and they're sort of half-dressed as Santas, and they're really, really jovial and cheerful. Like, they're so happy 
that I was thinking to myself, I don't think these guys know they're on the cancer ward. And one of them turns to me and he says, hey, how are you today, young lady? And he hands me uh, one of those little tiny candy canes, the kind that are they're wrapped up in, in cellophane, and it was broken in about four places. It was just this crappy candy cane, and he presses it in my hand. And he doesn't even wait for an answer, and I'm, you know, I'm not doing well. I've just been given some really bad news, and I'm trying to process it, and I'm, I'm standing there trying to come up with a socially acceptable answer. But before I can, he just says, well, enjoy your holiday, and walks away. When I left, Betty was still there. I was only in the hospital for about four or five days. My boyfriend and I went to visit my family in California, and I didn't want to tell them. I didn't want to worry them. So I spent the entire time, I mean, how could you not? I spent the entire time thinking, I wonder if I have cancer. <laughs> just That was my Christmas, is just thinking constantly, I wonder if I have cancer. It's always upsetting to be ill and to go to the hospital, but it feels particularly unnatural around Christmas. The two, the two worlds, this festive holiday world with the unpleasantness of real life just don't feel like they should intertwine. I don't know. I, I, I have a lot of empathy for people who are in the hospital now after that experience, but especially over the holidays. My sister knew something was wrong. She told me afterwards, you know, I knew something was up about that whole experience and you were obviously distracted. So she, she knew something was up. But I didn't let on. I was apparently doing a valiant job of trying to enjoy my holiday. behind me that's m-c-k-a-y you can always find the table of contents and the links to the websites of the artists that you hear on risk on our listen pages at risk-show.com and we just heard from julie threlkeld 
who has a blog called Modern Stories. <laughs> this episode, I just realized, is pretty heavy on the bloggers, huh? And the, the three that we had on kind of created the, the meat in a sandwich of bleakness. <laughs> because the first story by Margot was light, and the last story we're going to have here was light. But man, those bloggers were some bleak meat. The last story we're going to run with today is uh, actually one that we first featured last year at this time. A dear friend of the show, Madison Perry, out in Los Angeles. He actually produced the Los Angeles Chris show for the first maybe year, year and a half. And his story is named after one of my favorite movies because you know I love when the sacred meets the profane. This is Madison Perry with a story we call The Exorcist. After I graduated college, I moved home to my hometown in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I lived there for a couple years in a house with three of my best friends. Our rent combined at this house was less than I pay for a, a one-bedroom apartment here in L.A. now. We paid $250 each for a four-bedroom house with a garage and a backyard and a front yard uh, and a dishwasher, which I still don't have. All three of my roommates were soccer players, so they wore umbros all the time. Uh, so it became known as Casa de Umbro. And it was, it was like the party house amongst my, my friends. Uh, we'd have parties all the time. More than once, we came home, and despite no one that lived there being there, there was a party going on. <laughs> like our friends would break in, they knew the window they could get open, and they would just start a party, and we'd show up. And they're like, oh, we're having a party. And like, all right. So, but our best parties were the holiday parties. We would have holiday parties every year, and it was a big deal because one of my roommates, Kyler, he loves Christmas more than anyone I've ever met. Uh, basically, in early November, he starts listening to Christmas carols and pretty much nothing else for the next eight weeks. He starts watching Christmas Vacation, National Lampoons, yeah. about once a week. And um, he, uh, he has this little advent calendar that his grandma gave him that's actually made of wood, and you pull out these little drawers, and he would himself put candies in them. <laughs> and then every day in the month leading up to Christmas open them up and be, oh wow, nerd, you put those in there like a week ago. <laughs> like sometimes we would just steal the candy and he'd get really pissed in the morning. Like, where's the chocolate kiss? So, and oh, and the other thing he would do is he would turn his car, he, and he still does this at age 30, he turns his car into a Christmas mobile. And he puts, he hangs a wreath on the, uh, the front and he hangs mistletoe from the rearview mirror, and he has a power converter so that he can plug Christmas lights in, which he runs all along the interior of his car, um, which looks really cool and is also really illegal, um, <laughs> it turns out, because he gets pulled over almost every year by a cop and gets a ticket. And one year he actually says, like, are you Jewish? Is that why you're pulling me over? <laughs> And the cop laughed because he's a cop in Colorado, so of course he's not Jewish. <laughs> like, in Colorado, Jews are like shooting stars. Like, you don't see them very often, and when you do, you make a wish. Um, so that was like one of the years he didn't get a ticket when he made that joke. So this guy, he loves Christmas, okay? So he would always kind of be the force that would drive our holiday parties. Um, but the last year I lived in this house, he had been depressed all fall because he'd gotten his heart broken that summer. He'd started dating this girl, and they'd had this like 
brief but extremely intense and passionate love affair. It was the first time he'd fallen in love in his life. He was just head over heels. And then after a couple months, she left him and went back to her ex-boyfriend. And it was like very ugly. And it ended with him in our front yard bawling, saying, it's either him or me, which is... Like, that should only happen on the CW. Like, it's horrible to see. So he, he was depressed all fall. He would just, uh, he's normally like a very happy, fun guy, but he would just sit in his room with the lights off, and he would listen to uh, this album called Novocaine for the Soul. Uh, yeah, great album by the Eels. Every day, all day, it gets a little depressing uh, for his roommates. And he would wear uh, sweatpants and no shirt often, and he almost ate exclusively hot dogs uh, during this period. And one day, he came into the room, and there was like a yellow stain on his skin. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, oh, that's mustard. <laughs> mustard had dripped onto his bare skin, and he'd been too depressed to clean it off before it, like... On the scale of how depressed you are, that should be above suicide attempts if you let mustard dry on your bare skin. So that's the kind of depression we're talking about. So November comes around, no Christmas music. December comes around, no Christmas mobile, no Christmas music. He's not talking about the holiday party. So me and my roommates are like, we need to throw the holiday party. Like, he loves the holidays. We're going to snap him out of this. The reason he'd kind of been stuck and been depressed so long is this girl, her name was Jackie. She was, oh, she was such a bitch because she would do the thing where she'd kind of keep him on the line, you know? He was like her, her plan B. She, so she'd come over every so and be like, oh, I miss you. I'm not that happy with my boyfriend. I miss you, you know? She had that like sense of whenever he was kind of starting to come out of it, he'd get a call from her and then he'd be in a funk again. So he was just depressed and we're like, we're gonna snap him out of it with this holiday party. So we, uh, we invited a bunch of people and we bought some beer and that was pretty much it. <laughs> but when you're in your early... When you're in your early 20s buying beer before the day of the party, like, you're a pretty good party planner. Like, you put some thought into it. So we, we threw this party, and it was going great. A bunch of people came, and, and he, it like, kind of worked. Like, he put on his festive Christmas sweater. He was DJing the Christmas music. Like, he was having a good time. We were all having a good time. And then Jackie showed up at the party, this, this ex-girlfriend. She showed up, uninvited. And, and he, he's still in love with her, so he doesn't want us to kick her out. So we're just like, ugh. <laughs> So the party goes on. I go to find Kyler at a certain point because I want to show him something. I've combined uh, Sprite and beer. Um, <laughs> I called it Sprite beer. And I was like, he's going to love this. So I'm walking around with my Sprite beer looking for him. Can't find him. They're in his bedroom. He and Jackie, they're sitting on the bed. They're very clearly talking about something serious. And he's been crying. I can tell he's been crying. And before I can say anything, they shut the door and lock it. And I'm just like... Oh, you cunt. Because he was doing good, and she was like, I don't want you to stop loving me. So she had to pick that scab, you know, had to break his heart again. So I, I, I go down to my friends, and I tell them what I've seen, and we're like, we, we have to end this somehow. Like, we have to take control of this situation. We're like, for his Christmas present, we're going to get her away from him somehow. But, like, this is more than just regular, like, boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. Like, this was, like, supernatural, her power over him. <laughs> And so we were like, we have to free him from the clutches of this demon. And how do you do that? You have an exorcism. And um, we didn't have holy water, but we had a 72-ounce Big Gulp cup and tap water. And so our well-thought-out plan was, step one, fill up this novelty Star Wars cup to the top. <laughs> step two, throw it on her. <laughs> step three, Kyler's happy and Christmas is saved. <laughs> This was the plan we came up with. 
which sounds stupid now, but if you'd been there and you'd also had eight Sprite beers, you would have thought it was pretty good too. So we fill up the cup. There's a group of us, and we have a, a, a small blessing ceremony. <laughs> and we go upstairs to his bedroom, and the door's still locked, so I knock. And he's like, uh, go away. And I'm like, let me in. And so we're going back and forth. And what I finally got him to open the door by saying, I need to borrow your Home Alone soundtrack to, quote, really take the holiday spirit up a notch. And so he was like, okay, I have to do that. And so he comes to the door. And as soon as, like, my friends are waiting behind me. As soon as the door opens, I'm like, go, go, go. And they burst in like the SWAT team, you know. And we all rush in. And my friend Ian, he just point blank right into Jackie. Douses her with 72 ounces of water. And as he throws it, he says, Back to whence ye came, demon. (laughs) So there's just like a moment of calm after that as everyone's like, What the fuck just happened? And she doesn't start smoking (laughs) or melting or turning into a dragon. But uh, she does that thing like little kids do when they skin a knee, but they need a beat to like (gasps) prepare to scream. So she's doing that. So there's this beat of like, what's going to (laughs) happen? And then the room just erupts into chaos. She starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Kyler starts bawling again. And he's like, you got water on my computer. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And I take my shirt off. And I start drying up the water. And meanwhile, Jackie's face to face with Ian, the guy that threw the water. And she's like, why did you do this? Why would you do that to me? You threw it. I'm always. And she's just yelling and yelling. And he just stands there like this the whole time. And all he'll say is, the Lord's work has been done. (laughs) This house is clear. And that's, he just keeps saying this over and over again. And the more he says it and the calmer he is, the more worked up she gets and her just face is red. And finally, she's, people are like streaming into the room now like, what's going on? Why does he keep saying this house is clear and that he's done the Lord's work? What's happening? And she runs out and she's, she's covered and she has to borrow a jacket from someone because it's the winter. And, and Kyler goes after her crying and be like, don't leave, don't. And, uh, and then everyone's like looking at us like we're jerks because we threw water on Like, we're the assholes because we tried to exercise a demon, you know? <laughs> so Kyler goes, uh, he comes, she leaves, he comes back, he locks himself in his room again, he's pissed off at us, everyone thinks we're jerks. And next morning, under the light of uh, sober, we kind of think we might be jerks also. <laughs> we're like, maybe it was a little silly to think throwing water on someone would cure heartbreak. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, except for the fact that you can't argue with results because it fucking worked. <laughs> it fucking worked. He stopped, he stopped talking to her that day. He did not get in touch with her anymore. And he said it was because he realized if we were willing to do something so dumb for him, we must have been really worried about him. And he said, like, the next morning he thought about it. He's like, man, these guys, these friends really love me. Like, she doesn't love me. And, like, he really appreciated it. And so he's like, that's how I was able to get over the heartbreak. And so that felt great. Um, Although my theory is that she actually is a demon. And that's (laughs) why it worked. But uh, either way, that's uh, how I cured my friend of his heartache in the holidays. Thanks.
the acquaintance be forgotten, never brought to mind? Should all acquaintance be forgotten, days old lang syne? For all lang syne, my dear, for all lang syne, we'll drink a cup of Kindness yet for Well, that is almost it for this episode. We've decided to include a little bonus treat at the very end of it all. A story from the legendary New York radio storyteller Gene Shepard. A lot of his radio stories were turned into the film A Christmas Story. So a little something from Gene from 1965 after our end credits here. This is Andrew Bird behind me now. I hope that 2014 is just loaded with stories happening to you, stories you're sharing and hearing, and of course, stories being shared with you right here at risk. Do not forget, we need your help to keep it going. Go to MaximumFun.org and become a member or make a one-time donation and be sure to earmark risk as the reason you're there. We love all the ways that our fans connect with us. When you guys are emailing us about what the show means to you, or emailing us with ideas for how to move forward, or um, tweeting about us, or talking about us on Facebook, at Risk Show, or contacting us about doing workshops for your business or, or your creative team, or just yourself for a one-on-one coaching session over Skype or contacting us about how you might help us bring risk to your town or your school, especially if you happen to have a comedy festival or any sort of cultural festival like that, or sending us your story pitches at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Folks, this year's the year. (laughs) Take a risk. And there's a hand my trusty fear and gaze a hand to thine and we'll take a ride get where we walk for
And so I'm a kid one time. I was about, uh, oh, I maybe 11. And it was during Christmas vacation. And it's a Midwestern winter. Uh, the snow is four feet deep. And the wind is howling through the eaves outside. And the icicles are hanging down all the way to the ground. And it's that period of letdown after Christmas. You know, a kid is, oh, well, you know, Christmas has come and gone. Now it's just, he's got a full week before school starts again. It's going to be New Year's. And uh, he's already tired of the BB gun. He's had it already with the, with the fire truck. He's, he's uh, played uh, Monopoly enough. Now it's coming out of his ears and he's, he's fooling around and itching. Now, we had this, uh, you probably have, uh, get these things too, where they come around, the local uh, merchants, uh, the, the local stores, throw away these throwaways of the ads of, uh, of big sales, food ads, food sales, you know, big uh, post-Christmas sales, big uh, New Year's Day turkey sales and all that stuff. Well, I go struggling out to the porch to get the mail in the middle of this howling gale. And I come struggling back, and with me is this flyer. And it's for a store that was about two and a half miles away from our house, in the next town, as a matter of fact. And I'm looking through this, and they had an ad in there, a bushel of apples for 45 cents. So I'm thinking about this. And my kid brother is under the day bed. He's weak, you know, he's yelling and hollering whimpering and I drag him out and uh, I put on my earmuffs and I tell him to get on his helmet with the goggles and I put on my high tops and we go out into the snow and next door at the Bruner's house and I get Bruner out and the Bruner and myself my kid brother and at about 15 minutes flick are all standing in the driveway up to our eyebrows in frozen rotten cruddy dirty blast furnace snow the temperature is seven below zero. And I say, let's surprise our mothers. Let's go and get a bushel of apples for 45 cents. Well, I had a dollar that had been given to me by my Uncle Tom or a Christmas gift. And so I figured I would, what a fantastic surprise to bring home a bushel of apples. Now, don't ask me why. I know it's a silly question, silly thing to do. Don't ask me why. And so my kid brother, eh, and the Flick says, well, how do we get there? And the Bruner says, how do you expect to get over there? And I said, we'll take our sleds. Well, we started. We were fighting against a raging gale. It was about one o'clock in the afternoon. Well, after two and a half hours, we had gone maybe one half a mile just far enough not to turn back and just far enough to know we might never make it. Ooh, the wind howled and it howled and my kid brother was hanging on to the back of my sheepskin coat. Bruner was limping badly. Flick's nose was running all the way down to his knees and I said, forward! The madness was on me. Well, we fought the howling winter gale for, I would say, a good five hours. Uh, have you ever had frostbitten ears? Well, I have had frostbitten ears. I got them that afternoon. My kid brother had a frostbitten head. 
Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you. Before we got there, Bruner was frozen solid. We had him lashed to the sled. And, and Flick, believe me, was a sled himself. We were just pulling him along. He had runners sticking out of his ears. And we finally arrived at the IGA store. I'll never forget this. We were unable to walk. We were just walking out like, like stiff with, with ice all over our ears. And we came out of this howling gale. And there was the IGA store at long last. And I took one look at the IGA store, and I says, here we are. It was closed. Closed. It must have been a half an hour after the IGA store had closed. I couldn't believe it. You see, because this was my whole bit. This was my shtick. Uh, this was a hang-up that I had. I was the driving force behind that. At a certain point in misery, you don't complain anymore. Are you aware of that? Uh, you reach a point beyond which complaining is gone. You just sit there and you freeze or you burn or whatever it is you're doing and you no longer whimper. You don't say anything about it. And my kid brother was just standing there like a fire plug. He wasn't crying or anything. Flick's nose. It was, just, it was no longer running. It was frozen. There two long icicles hanging down. And uh, Brunner was just standing there numbly in a snow drift. I could see his eyes sticking out of the snow. And we stood there in front of the IGA store. <laughs> and you think I gave up? Oh, boy. <laughs> I said, let's go on to the A&P. Well, you know, they weren't running 45 cent a bushel uh, sales at the A&P. So the A&P was another four blocks down. So we struggled on to the A&P. And the wind is howling. It's getting dark. Well, we got to the A&P, and it's still open. They stayed open a half an hour longer than the IGA store. And into the A&P, we got just tremendous heat hit us instantly. And that's when they all started to cry. All three of them started to yell and holler. And I go back to the vegetable department, and I said, do you have apples for sale? I said, apples? What do you mean apples? Yeah, there's apples. You know, apples, three for a dime. And they, they had them all. I said, I want a bushel of apples. A bushel of apples? What do you mean a bushel of apples? And I took out my ad, and I showed it to him, 45 cents for a bushel of apples. Well, the manager of this store, I will, I will never forget this, because obviously he saw there were four kids with a fantastic hang-up. And he says, well, that's the IGA store. I said, I know, but they're closed. He says, bushel of apples for 45. I said, well, I know what they're talking about. He says, they're talking about those little horse apples. Those little, I can see them muttering. It's all hard to and he goes down to the basement with two kids, and they came back up with a bushel of apples. And they gave me a bushel of apples for 45 cents. Now, I will never forget, every time I walk into the A&P now, I get a vaguely warm glow. And, and they gave me a bushel of apples for 45 cents. And all four of us are holding this. Have you ever carried a bushel of apples when you're tan, you know, and you're frozen? And the four of us have got this bushel of apples. And, and, and I gave him the dollar, and the guy gave me back the change. He said, uh, do you want us to deliver them? I said, no, we're going to take them home. He says, in the snow like this? Where do you live? And I told him, he says, I, you, you, you're going to, well, are you driving? I said, well, we got our sleds. And it's getting dark. It's about six o'clock out there now. You know, it would be like two o'clock in the morning by the time we got back with these with these crummy apples. And the manager of the apple department of the A and P says, "Well, maybe you better call home. It's for a surprise." He says, "It's for a surprise for who? Well, going to surprise our ma." So, gee, I don't know what to say. Well. 
Mr. So-and-so has decided that you better go home in the truck. And uh, we'll take you home. Uh, you say you're going home to Hessville? I said, yeah. <laughs> Cleveland Street. But the... What about our sleds? Oh, okay. Well, let's pick up the sleds. Well, all four of us got in the back of this truck with our three sleds and a bushel of apples. And they turned around and they drove all the way on back. The guy couldn't believe it. We had gone about three, maybe three miles, close to three miles, in probably the most gigantic snowstorm that had hit this town in years. And so about a block away, I'm knocking on the door, see? I'm knocking on the back window, and he's in the cab. We're sitting in the back. I'm banging on the window, and he stops. He says, is this where you live? And I says, yeah. We're a block away from home, see? And so he says, okay, kids. He says, boy, man, he says, gee whiz, wow, what a night. I don't know how you came this far. And so out we go out the back. And I put the bushel of apples on the sled, and I started to tug and Flick pushed, and Bruner hung on to the back of my coat, and my kid brother is whimpering in the snowdrifts, and we went up to the back porch of the house through a block of blinding blizzard, and my mother came out. I says, Ma, I got a surprise for you. And she says, What have you? Apples, a bushel of apples. How wonderful. Oh, for heaven's sakes, where did you get them? A bushel of apples. I said, We got them. At the IGA store, Ma. She says, a bushel. And then I showed her the ad. I said, see, look, a bushel of apples. We thought we'd surprise you. And now comes the denouement. We had 4,500 apples, all frozen as hard. Have you ever tasted an apple that was frozen and then thawed out? The instant those apples thawed out, they all turned into one gigantic pile of Brown mush. <laughs> but you know, for, for, for years after that, it was like a big thing in the family. It was like the time that I really went out and did it. And everyone said, well, do you remember the time that Gene went down and got the bushel of apples? Gee whiz. That, that was really something. Wasn't that great how they did that? And we'd say, yeah. And that, to me, will always remind me of the great hang-up. I, I, I realize that, that many adults carry a thing like that all their lives. Some fantastic drive that just never lets them stop. 